0: They will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will give them springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Roy, I knew I could trust you to answer the question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? That is how James Lipton ended every interview on his show, Inside the Actor's Studio. Famous people from Hollywood would sit before a large audience. They would answer all sorts of questions about the art and craft of movie making, and then at the end, each of them would have to answer that last lingering query, and they'd have to come up with something. What would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates, George Clooney? Welcome! Come on in! Rosemary's singing, Nat Cole's on the keys, Buddy Rich is playing the drums, and they're playing always. What would you like to hear God say, Halle Berry? Your dad will be so excited to see you. What would you like to hear God say, Robert Redford? You're too early. What would you like to hear God say, Robin Williams? (laughs) You're really funny. And James Lipton himself once answered his own question. James, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? James, you were wrong. I do exist. But you may come in anyway. It's a great equalizer, that question. What do you want to hear God say when you arrive? I love it because most of us spend most of our time avoiding thinking about the end at all costs. And then these superstars, these incredibly famous people, get real for a moment. They open up in a way that their entire profession runs against. They're always pretending to be something else, and in this moment, they have to be true. A few years back, some friends and I started recording our conversations with theologians and pastors and regular old Christian types for a podcast we call Crackers and Grape Juice. And because nothing original ever happens in the church, we decided to end the episodes with James Lipton's 10 Questions from Inside the Actor Studio. Some of the other questions include, what's your favorite sound? What's a profession you would never, ever want to try? And what's your favorite curse word? That's a fun question to ask to a bunch of Christian types as they shift back and forth thinking about should I tell the truth or should I say my favorite curse word is shucks? And like with James Lipton, we always end with the infamous what would you like to hear God say at the pearly gates? I have to tell you, we have hundreds and hundreds of episodes and almost every person who has come on the podcast answers the question in the exact same way. What do you want to hear God say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, you know, it's nice that Christians can quote the Bible, but that's a boring answer. And we need something exciting, you know. We need a good story. And to me, the best answer we ever got, it came from Bishop Will Williman. Will and I went to church together when I was in Durham. He was one of my professors. I have some of his books on my shelves downstairs in my office. He's a good guy. Now, prior to having him on the podcast in the months leading up to it, he had been very, very vocal in his denouncements against modern politics in general, but the Trump administration in particular. He had written uh, articles for newspapers, op-eds. He had rebuked the former president from his pulpit, on and on and on. So when we asked him the question, Will, what do you want to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? This is what he said. Welcome, Will. It's about time. We're so happy to have you here. But before you get too settled, the Trump family is here and they'd like to have a word. In theological speak, that is a robust understanding of the eschaton. In church speak, it's important for us to remember that heaven, whatever heaven is, and is populated entirely and only by forgiven sinners. In normal speak, as I said before, if grace really is as amazing as we sing it is, then it means no one is outside the realm of God's love. So, imagine if you can, a sermon not starting with a punchy little anecdote like the one I just told, though I think that story is a pretty good one. Imagine a different kind of moment. You come to church on a Sunday, you sit down in these pews, someone dressed like me stands up in front of you, and the first thing the preacher says is, "If you are poor, you are blessed." If you're hungry, if you're unemployed, if you're going through marital separation, if you're afraid of what tomorrow will bring, if you're failing in your parenting, if you're going through an ordeal right now, you are blessed. If a preacher started that way, you might wonder if the preacher had lost his or her marbles. How could any of those people be blessed? If a pastor started a sermon in such a radical way, there's no telling if anyone would be there to hear how it ended. But here's the rub. In the kingdom of the world, the kingdom we think pulls all the strings, if you're poor, you're treated like a curse. If your marriage is falling apart, then you're cut off from your friends. If you're failing in your parenting, then your children go off the rails, and all those nice birthday party invitations, they stop coming in. If you're going through an ordeal in the world, you're largely left to your own devices because there is nothing blessed about going through an ordeal, at least not according to the world. But sermons, all of worship for that matter, they are not about the kingdom of the world. If they are about anything, they are about Jesus and his kingdom, the kingdom of God. And yet we are so embedded in the world's way of existence that we live in constant kingdom confusion. We can only act in a world we can see. What we do in church, our singing, our praying, our listening, our responding, it's all about painting a picture. We work with words, but it's about images. About showing us a world that does not look like our own. And I know that at times church can feel like a program for betterness. That all things considered, we're a bunch of good people getting gooder all the time. A sermon can end with a call to social action. Announcements at the beginning of the service can, can pull at our heartstrings about how we can be more virtuous in our community. But the truth is a, is a, har, a far harder pill to swallow. We are not a bunch of nice people getting nicer. We're actually a bunch of bad people hanging out with a lot of other bad people and we're getting together to cope with our inability to be good. Therefore, the church exists to, as another hymn says, open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. The church is not the world and the world is not the church. The world will always tell us that the most important things are being first, best, found big, and alive, but the church stands as a rebuke and reminds us that Jesus comes for the last, the least, the lost, the little, and the dead, which, whether we like it or not, eventually includes each and every single one of us. That's why Jesus can say, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who thirst for something they do not have. Not because they describe a program for what makes the world a better place. Jesus says these things to stretch our imaginations, to push the limits of our own vision so that we might see something so new, so different from everything else we've seen, that we realize we cannot rely on what we think we know to be true. Put another way, the strange new world of the Bible, it doesn't tell us what to do. It paints a picture of who God is. So what does John see? John sees a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, all tribes, people's languages. They're standing before the throne. They're robed in white. They've got palm branches in their hands, and they're singing out, salvation belongs to God. John the revelator sees what we, more often than not, what we cannot see. The great multitude in the end, in the eschaton from every nation, tribe, people, and language, they sing, they gather together, they worship forever and ever. Oddly enough, John doesn't know who they are. The elder says, Who are these people? John says, No, you know who they are. And the elder answers his question, They are those who have gone through the great ordeal. John catches a glimpse of what Jesus promises that in the last days, by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we shall rejoice at the supper of the Lamb, that there is no amount of suffering that can stop God from getting what God wants. Each and every one of us will experience ordeals in this life, some worse than others, because we live on this side of the end. But in the same way, there is no amount of good works or feeling sorry or being repentant that can earn us anything in the resurrection of the dead. In the kingdom of heaven, it is only... By the blood of the Lamb, that the sins of the world are taken away. Now, I myself, particularly because I do this as my vocation, I love jokes about St. Peter's at the pearly gates. Those jokes never get old. They are so good, they are so funny. If you've got a good one, please tell me after worship today. I'd love to add it to my arsenal. But contrary to every single joke about St. Peter at the pearly gates, that ain't how it works. There is no bouncer checking IDs of our goodness before we are swept up into the party. Actually, there might be a bouncer in heaven, but if there is one, his name is Jesus and he is kicking down every barrier that prevents us from getting in. Here's the promise. It's the promise of God, the promise of Scripture, the promise of faith. There will come a time when we will hunger no more. There will come a time when we thirst no more. There will come a time when the sun will not strike us with scorching heat because the lamb will be Our shepherd. That is our comfort and our hope. And it's good reason for us to hear this promise from John today. It's good for us to hear because some of us are hungry. Some of us are hungry for actual food. Some of us are hungry for righteousness in the world. Some of us are thirsty. We're thirsty for clean water to drink, whereas others of us are thirsty for the waters of baptism that remind us who we are and whose we are. On and on, John speaks into the realities of here and now. But what does the vision mean? That's what I always hear. What does scripture mean? We can't help ourselves from such a question. I long for the days when images and sights are just enough on their own and we don't have to probe them for every single little meaning. But today, perhaps we can at least answer the question of meaning with this. John's vision reminds us that not all is as it should be. That not all is as it should be. There's this sentiment that we share with one another, and we usually share it when we don't know what else to say. We say, oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of. And you know, that's actually kind of true, but when we say it, we offer it as a denial of the harsh truth of the world. There are plenty of things that frighten us because there are plenty of things that are wrong with the world. As Christians, we know the depths of pain. We know the banality of evil. We keep a cross in our sanctuaries. It's a sign of death. Therefore, we tell the truth as Christians. We tell the truth about what's happening with the powers and the principalities in the world, not as a denial of their presence, but a reminder that though they exist, they don't get to say the final word. Only God gets to say the final word. God gets the first word, and God gets the last word, and that word is Jesus. All of the multitudes who are there, from every tribe, language, people, nation, they are there only because of the last word. And when we see that we see that we have the strength to live in a world such as ours because we know where it's heading. The good news of this is that the robes that they wear they are washed in the blood of the lamb. That's good news because we can't make ourselves clean. We all do things we know we shouldn't. We all avoid doing things we know we should. As the old prayer book says, we're miserable offenders. And we can absolutely try to make the world less of a mess for ourselves and others. We can even come up with ideas on how to make the world a more bearable place. But any programs for progress, enter any better strategies for better behavior, behavior, they will ultimately fail at what we really need because if those things worked, then we would have fixed all the world's problems by now. No one would ever have to go through an ordeal, but we are not there yet. We can't save ourselves. We need someone to do it for us. We need a savior. And that's what we get in Jesus. Salvation is a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's a gift. And it's given by the only one who can, God. And when we know that this gift is given to us, that there is nothing we can do for good or ill that will ever take that gift away, everything else about our life changes. We start to live in the light of grace. We realize that we can only be graceful toward ourselves and toward others because God has been so graceful to us. John helps us to see that in the end, when all is said and done, when the forces that sometimes cause us to suffer and weep and mourn, when those things are vanquished, the once crucified lamb will reign at the center of the throne. Every tear will be wiped away, not because we have made it so, but because we worship the God who reigns above and below We say all the time that seeing is believing, but the opposite's true. Believing is seeing. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.